0: Hello, and welcome to ALERT, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. We come to you from our broadcast studio at CJUM in Winnipeg, and we welcome listeners tuning into our show online or from our affiliated campus and community radio stations across Canada.
1: On today's show, we'll hear from journalist Don Paley, about the recent death of an Indigenous community leader in Mexico and how this death and others implicate Canadian mining interests. We'll hear from Judy Rebick about the fallout from Thomas Mulcair's successful NDP leadership bid, and we'll hear a report from Stefan Christoph about last Thursday's student protests in Montreal.
0: First, here are the alert headlines for the week of March 29, 2012. The Council of Canadians has filed a legal challenge to overturn the election results of seven ridings that were influenced by the robocalls. The council says the phone calls harassed voters or misinformed them of polling stations in several highly contested races, including ridings in Manitoba, Ontario, British Columbia, Saskatchewan, and Yukon. These ridings were all won by Conservatives, and all but one was decided by a margin of less than 1,000 votes. Because of the small margins of victory, the prosecuting lawyer says there is reasonable basis to believe the voter suppression tactics influenced the outcome. The Guelph riding, which is the epicentre of the robocall scandal, is not included in the challenge.
1: Ontario's highest court has ruled in favour of allowing sex workers to conduct business in brothels and to hire security, but has upheld laws against communicating solicitation. The Ontario Court of Appeals decision effectively rejects Ottawa's view that sex workers knowingly choose a dangerous occupation and that therefore can't appeal laws that keep them in that danger. Valerie Scott, a former sex worker and women involved in the case, thanked the court for declaring sex workers persons. We're almost real citizens now, she said. The ruling was in response to a 2010 Toronto court decision that struck down Canada's prostitution laws, which allowed sex workers to freely solicit on the street, work in their homes or brothels, and hire security or accountants without being subject to the criminal sanctions.
0: The federal NDP elected Thomas Mulcair as their new party leader last weekend. With official opposition status, some believe their party could soon form government. This may explain the choice of Mulcair as party leader. He ran on a centrist approach and is a former Liberal cabinet minister in the Quebec provincial government. Mulcair says he wants to ensure that Canadians see the NDP as a competent party, capable of forming government and offering solid public administration.
1: Around 200,000 students in Quebec took to the streets last week in protest of the provincial government's plan to to double post-secondary tuition fees over the next five years. There was also several lead-up actions to Thursday's march, including a blockade of a major commuter bridge. While the government is dismissing these actions as the efforts of a jobless few and arguing that tuition hikes will save the taxpayer much-needed money, many in the province have dubbed these tuition protests «Printemps Erable," the «Maple Spring». Commentator-activist Judy Rebick noted that students in Quebec are not just protesting tuition hikes, but are saying no to the neoliberal agenda that says the poor, students, and workers have to pay for the crisis of capitalism.
0: In anticipation of funding cuts to the CBC in this year's federal budget, a petition with over 27,000 signatures was delivered to the Finance Minister and 13 other Conservative MPs to keep Canada connected with the CBC. Jamie Biggar of leadnow.ca said that even a 10% cut could jeopardize CBC Radio or the station's digital programming. Late last year, CBC executives said, amidst rumors of privatization, that they were preparing for major funding cuts in the 2012 budget. The government hasn't commented on the cuts, but Heritage Minister James Moore said the federal conservatives have no plans to privatize CBC.
1: Graduate students at Carleton University recently voted in a referendum question for the university's pension fund to divest from four companies involved in occupation of Palestine, The campaign at Carleton began four years ago and pressures university administration to adopt a socially responsible investment policy for the pension fund, noting that four companies in their portfolio, including Motorola and Tesco Supermarkets, have investments on occupied Palestinian land. Last month, students at the University of Virginia voted for their students' union to join the global boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign.
0: A group of over 600 Canadian scientists wrote Harper last week, urging him not to remove Habitat Protections from the Fisheries Act. After reminding Harper of elementary science, such as the link between habitat destruction and species decline, scientists demanded that he, quote, "...strengthen, not weaken, habitat protection provisions of the Fisheries Act," unquote. The changes are said to only apply to fisheries of economic, cultural, and ecological value. This makes no sense, the letter states. All species are of ecological value. David Schindler, the internationally lauded ecologist, told the Toronto Star, the wording of the Fisheries Act is just fine the way it is if government would simply enforce it.
1: A spontaneous strike of Air Canada workers broke out last week at Pearson International Airport in Toronto after sarcastically applauding Federal Labour Minister Lisa Raitt while she was walking through the airport, several workers were pulled aside by security, escorting the minister, and were suspended. Upon hearing of the suspension, workers at Pearson and in airports in Montreal, Quebec City, and Vancouver walked off the job in solidarity. In an interview with Socialist Project, one of the Toronto workers said this strike shows the company quote, that at a rank-and-file level we are organizing. Unquote. The strike ended 12 hours after it began after an arbitrator ruled there would be no reprisals against the workers if they returned to their job.
0: In foreign news, public services in Portugal were suspended last week in the country's second general strike in two months. As with last month's strike, unions called for massive action in protest to the austerity measures handed down by the EU and IMF as preconditions for a bailout. The austerity measures in the country included significant attacks on labour, including legislation that makes it easier for companies to fire workers. Major unions in Spain announced last week they are also planning general strikes to protest austerity measures and attacks on workers. Those are the alert headlines for this week. Now for Around the Left for the week of March 29, 2012. For those in London, on March 31st attend the London Anarchist Book Fair from 11am to 7pm at the Canadian Union of Postal Workers Hall at 520 Wellington Street Unit 7 next to City Hall. There will be workshops throughout the day on various topics including Anarchism 101, LGBT and feminist organizing, and the expansion of mega prisons in Ontario. Food Not Bombs will be providing lunch and a social event with open mic will follow the book fair. For all anarchist distributors and publishers, there is no charge for tables, but the organizers ask that a small percentage of profits after expenses be donated to the book fair to allow it to sustain itself and grow. Anyone with questions, concerns, or requests can email londonanarchistbookfair at gmail.com.
1: On Saturday, April 7th in Winnipeg, the Canada-Palestine Support Network, Winnipeg, presents Dance Down the Wall 7, an event to help raise funds for humanitarian aid and relief efforts in the Gaza Strip and elsewhere in Palestine. Dance Down the Wall will take place from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. at Low Pub 330 Kennedy Street and will feature music by DJ Co-op, Clash & Cooks, and others. Admission is $10. For more information, search for the event page on Facebook or email canpalnetwinnipeg at yahoo.ca.
0: Attend the Ontario Day of Action Against Cuts on April 21st at 3 o'clock p.m. at Queen's Park in Toronto. Premier McGuinty put banker Don Drummond in charge of recommending nearly 400 cuts to jobs and public services in Ontario. At a time when Ontarians are in desperate need of economic recovery, these cuts will jeopardize every aspect of society. The Ontario Federation of Labour is working with community groups and organisations across Ontario to call on workers, retirees, students and community members to join a mass rally to demand prosperity, not austerity. Help to mobilise your members, your families and your communities to stop the cuts and put Ontario on the road to economic recovery. Our collective future depends on it. Tell Premier McGinty to build Ontario, not tear it apart. For those in Winnipeg, on April 22nd, take to the streets for the 9th Annual 7th Generation Walk for Mother Earth in support of grassroots, Indigenous-led campaigns to preserve the earth for future generations. There will be speakers at Central Park from 1 to 2 p.m., followed by a walk to the Forks via Memorial Park. The walk will arrive at the Udina Circle at the Forks at 3.30 p.m. for the Annual Spring Water Ceremony and a free picnic. This is a garbage free family event. Bring drums, banners, cups, plates, and voices. The 11th annual Graduate Conference in Communication and Culture at York University and Ryerson University, titled Intersections 2012 Occupations, will take place April 27th to 29th at Ryerson University in Toronto. The unfolding events at Occupy Wall Street and elsewhere present possibilities for new politics and new forms of learning from, living with, and engaging each other. Email intersections.occupations at gmail.com.
1: On March 15th, an Indigenous Zapotec community leader outspoken against a Canadian mining company operating in Mexico was murdered. Bernardo Vasquez Sanchez was ambushed by a group of about three gunmen after having been publicly critical of Vancouver-based Fortuna Silver Mines, which is active in San Jose del Progreso, Oaxaca. Canadian mining companies have been coming into the spotlight lately for the suppression of human, environmental, and labor rights in communities abroad in which they operate environmental and labor rights in communities abroad in which they operate. Dawn Paley is a journalist who has been following community struggles against Canadian mining companies. She has also contributed to Vancouver Co-op, the Vancouver Observer and Media Co-op. To give us more insights into this recent tragedy and others like it, Alert has reached her in Chiapas, Mexico. Thank you for joining us, uh, Dawn. It's
2: my pleasure. Thank
1: you. Okay, now, uh, could you first of all state, uh, now as I understand it, you were one of the last journalists to speak to Mr. Sanchez before he died. Uh, did he did he relay any um, feelings to you at that time of his life being threatened?
2: Uh, absolutely. I mean, he mentioned to, I was there with a, another journalist who's based in Oaxaca. Um, we spoke to him about three weeks before he was murdered, and he took us Uh, he told us about graffiti that existed in San Jose del Progreso that included death threats towards his person. Um, And he was definitely aware that there was, you know, that it was dangerous, very dangerous what he was doing.
1: Mm -hmm. And uh, could you maybe state, like, maybe some of, was there any particular incident or incidents that may have, uh, as you see it, uh, put his life in jeopardy?
2: Well, certainly. I mean, there's, if you go to YouTube and Google his name, uh, Bernardo Vasquez sanchez you'll see that um, he's spoken all over Mexico. I mean, um, at various anti-mining protests throughout the country, he spoke in front of the Canadian Embassy in Mexico City, he was regularly quoted in yeah, you know, he would organize um, together with compañeros to hold press conferences denouncing the company. Um, so he's very, I mean, I'm sure that they were watching him, um, by which I mean, you know, his words had a lot of reach. Um, okay. Certainly his, his message uh, and the message that he was transmitting from his community was definitely getting out there on a national level before his uh, assassination.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, when it comes to the company itself, uh, Fortuna Silvermines, uh, what what are the reaction on the part of uh, their executives to this death? Are, are they taking any responsibility?
2: Well, um, there was a, another killing that took place uh, on in January of this year, um, and actually the person that was murdered that day has the same name. Uh, his name is also Bernardo Vasquez, and uh, the reaction by the company after that killing is pretty much the same as it was after. Bernardo Vasquez-Sanchez was killed in March, which was that they basically said that this is a a result of internal conflict within the community and that, you know, these are things that have been going on for a long time and, you know, that the company really has nothing to do um, with with these violent acts. It's the same reaction. Um, There was an interview on CTV News, Uh, although it's worth noting that the CEO refused to... um, be interviewed on the air. Um, They did play a voice, a tape of of a phone interview, where the CEO made the same claims, basically saying, this is a long-standing conflict in the community, and, um, you know, claiming that the company's doors are open, that they're open to, you know, people who are concerned about this to talking with them, but they're certainly not, um, and of course they wouldn't, right, uh, admit to any uh, connection between their mining operation and, and the increase of violence in this region.
1: But that connection does exist within the minds of people in the communities.
2: Well, certainly. And I mean, I think that if you look back um, over the numbers, I mean, there's so far Bernardo Vasquez, who was killed in March, is the, is the fourth person uh, to be murdered in this community uh, in the few short years since Fortuna Silver has uh, started their operations there. So, And this is a small community. We're not talking about a big city. Um, so, you know, this is, this is not just in people's minds, at least and people's lived experience. It's just become a more conflictual uh, area since since uh, the, the mining company has, has become active there. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, could you uh, talk a little bit about um, what's happening in the community currently? I mean, I've heard about uh, protests in front of the Canadian embassy. Uh, is there more happening in the way of... Uh, trying to protect these communities in the face of these foreign mining interests?
2: Well, that's a big question. Um, I should clarify that I haven't been back to uh, San Jose del Progreso since Bernardo was murdered. I do know um, from people I've talked to there, however, that there, in addition to the protests in front of the Canadian embassy in Mexico City, there was also coordinated actions um, near San Jose del Progreso and also at the Canadian Consulate in Oaxaca City um, that were carried out um, in rage uh, and demanding justice, specifically because of the murder of, of Bernardo Vasquez, but also uh, you know, in defense of the land uh, against transnational mining companies. And these demonstrations were supported by teachers um, and by a broad uh, cross-section of, of you know, Oaxacan um, social movements.
1: Mm-hmm. Could you, is it possible for you to just at least outline in some way how the mining interests and the governing interests and these uh, these groups uh, that uh, enforcers, if you will, how, how they connect with each other?
2: I mean, this is um, certainly a very complicated question. I can tell you that, uh, you know, every case is different, but from what I... Understood about what was happening in San Jose del Progreso, and this is coming uh, from my extended interview that I did with Bernardo Vázquez before his death, um, as well as with uh, speaking with other folks in the community there, and uh, also to a priest, um, Padre Martín, who previously had you know, served the parish of San Jose del Progreso um, and has since uh, left because of a violent uh, acts against him. Um, You know, they talk about a group called San Jose Defending Our Rights, Uh, San Jose defendiendo Nuestros Derechos, uh, which, you know, is essentially what they refer to as a a pro-mining group, so uh, a group of people from the same community of San Jose del Progreso who are in favor of the mine, um, who are also armed and had appeared armed and been photographed uh, carrying arms by... um, by associates and, 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 and compañeros of, of Bernardo and people who are resisting the mine. So, um, you know, it's not f- from the level of, of where we can see it as, as outsiders. Um, I mean, there's certainly not going to be a paper trail, for example, uh, connecting a group like this, which is essentially a paramilitary group, to a mining company. Um, but the connection for people in the community was certainly uh, very clear.
0: Now.
1: In terms of uh, uh, successfully uh, changing the state of affairs for these countries, um, is it possible for you to articulate, well, what is the biggest uh, concern, or, or maybe put it in a different way, what would be uh, the weakest point for the Canadian mining companies? Like, What would persuade them to, uh, to discontinue their operations? How could they best be challenged?
2: I mean, they could certainly... I mean, they would be dissuaded, for example, if gold prices uh, collapsed. That's about the only thing I think that would dissuade them uh, in a very, you know, in a swift sort of uh, manner. Um, You know, there's all kinds of laws that these companies should be following, not in Canada, as discussed at length, Um, you know, that Canada is, is, you know, a paradise for these uh, companies to have impunity. But, for example, here in Mexico... Um, Mexico is a signatory of uh, International Labor Organization Convention 169, which mandates that you know, foreign companies uh, and the Mexican government have a requirement to consult with indigenous people, for example, a legal requirement to consult with people so that they have meaningful impact as to whether these types of projects go forward or not. Um, these laws exist. They're certainly not uh, enforced or you know, extremely rarely actually used. And, you know, in that way, they, they don't dissuade these companies. I mean, um, I really do think that, you know, it, it's so important to have resistance uh, from communities, and I think that, you know, you can, you can tell that this, these resistance movements have an impact by how repressed they are, I mean, through force and through violence. Um, if they weren't having an impact, uh, they would simply be ignored. But, um, but, you know, I do think that, you know, while gold is above $1,000 an ounce, for example, um, it will be very difficult to, you know, ask these companies nicely if they'll please, you know, leave and go back to Canada. We don't even want them in Canada. I mean, a lot of places. But uh, I think that, you know, it's, it's a long, hard, hard struggle. There's really, there's really no easy, no easy answer at all.
1: Well, that uh, being said, is there anything that you uh, or what could be? What could uh, communities do outside of those indigenous communities? Maybe people in Canada and elsewhere. What could they do to assist in, in reining in these mining companies?
2: Well, I mean, there's been a, a couple of uh, interesting initiatives. For example, right? For example, um, Bill C300. You know, there was a lot of uh, activity around that. Um, there's currently a bill uh, as well before the House of Commons. Um, Basically, proposing to introduce a sort of an Alien Toward Claims Act in Canada, which would which would create a mechanism by which Canadian companies could be sued um, by foreign nationals for um, acts committed in other countries. Um, so, you know, there is a, a, a quite a ha of, of, of activism happening at, a, at that level in Canada. Um, but you know, there's also very interesting actions that happen. Um, locally, like in Vancouver uh, last year, you know, big protests at, at um people, you know, locally in, in Vancouver, Toronto, um, in the cities where these companies actually have their base, um, getting more educated um, about the role of these companies and trying to do, you know, more outreach to people in Canada about what these companies are doing in, in, uh, in other places and also in, in Indigenous territories throughout Canada. Um, You know, there's work around pension funds being done. Um, There's work around ethical funds. Like some of these so-called ethical funds are are heavily invested in these big uh, mining companies. Um, There's been direct actions. So, you know, there's all kinds of uh, different ways I think that, you know, people that are living in Canada uh, are uniquely positioned to respond publicly um, to, you know, the atrocities being committed. in, 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 you know, all over the world, really. This isn't something just happening in Latin America. This is, this is happening everywhere. And I think folks in Canada are, are very well positioned to, to increase and to keep a really high public pressure uh, on not only on these companies, but on their executives um, who, you know, walk around Vancouver in, in total impunity, uh, even though, you know, know that they're complicit uh, in uh, certainly complicit in, uh, in very violent uh, and, and very disturbing uh, activities in, in other people's territories.
1: Well, Don Paley, I, I really want to thank you uh, for your journalism on this uh, subject and uh, for uh, bringing this to the attention of, of alert listeners. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. Sorry about the background
1: noise. <laughs> That's okay. Enjoy your smoothie. Thank you. And uh, we've been speaking with uh, Don Paley, She is a journalist who has been following community struggles against Canadian mining companies, and she contributes to the Vancouver Observer and to the Vancouver Media Co-op. Last Saturday, the NDP voted in Thomas Mulcair to lead them into the next federal election. This has come to be something of a controversial choice. However, it has uh, the party has, by and large, embraced Thomas Mulcair, although with a few suspicious omissions. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, what the impact of this choice will be. Uh, joining us right now uh, is Judy Rebick. She's returning after our last conversation last week. Judy Rebick is... Uh, Founder of Rabble.ca and a longtime observer and activist, Judy Repic. Uh, why don't you tell us first of all uh, uh, how do you feel about the way things turned out? Is it pretty much the way you expected?
3: Um. Yes, I have to say yes. I thought uh, I I was concerned that Mulcair would win, and he won. And it was I thought I thought the con- the convention was interesting. I think the most the thing I expected least was the strength that uh, Nathan Cullen showed, um, which was interesting. Uh, and, but I did—I suspected from the beginning that Brian Topp would not be able to defeat Brian Mulcair,
1: mm-hmm. so uh,
3: I wasn't surprised.
1: Okay. Now, uh, the uh, Mulcair—what they're saying is that he's going to be moving the party in a more centrist direction. Um, could you well, uh,
4: I don't know
3: about centrist. I think he's moving the party to, to the, right. the right. It's already centrist, yeah from my
1: perspective. Yeah, and, and this is a point that was uh, brought forward uh, by uh, you know, last week. Uh, Murray Cook in particular, was talking about how Jack Layton uh, had one of the uh, aspects of his legacy was to move the party to the, to the, to the center of the political spectrum when uh, uh, it would have been difficult for other leaders to do that. Uh, so do you, um, is it is it safe to say that uh, you would agree with that uh, kind of analysis? And-
3: yeah, you know, I, I think that there's, you know, I think that the analysis of left, right, and center is limited. Um, it's one of the spectrums, you know, and there, to me, you have to look at left, right, and center. You have to look at democratic issues around not just electoral reform, but democracy in the party, Um, the relationship between the party and social movements, and then there's environmental issues, right? So I think you have to look at any particular party or candidate on all three of those spectrums, and they're not necessarily the same. You can be quite left-wing and be really clueless on democratic issues. Hmm. And I felt, you know, certainly my view in the last uh, 10 years or so is that the democratic issues have to be at the center of progressive change. So, you know, participatory democracy, um, bottom-up kind of organizing. And this is my biggest concern about Mulcair, is he is nowhere on those issues. He doesn't even support proportional representation, the most basic of the democratic issues. And, so, and he's a very authoritarian leader. So I'm most concerned about that. I'm also concerned about him moving the party to the right on issues like free trade in Israel, hmm. in particular.
1: Yes, and... Um Speaking of Israel, I, I know that he appointed Libby Davies or kept her as a deputy leader of the party. Mm-hmm. So does that maybe give you any sense of comfort that maybe not it, all is not bad? Because I know they were definitely on, on different, had different takes on the whole question yeah. of Israel.
3: Well, I think it's positive that he kept her as deputy leader. How long that'll last, I don't know. Um, I think that any smart political leader, and, and he's smart, for sure, um, tries to unite a party after a debate, and uh, some of us uh, were very vocal about the concern that he would shut Libby out. And so I think his uh, keeping her on and at least indicating the intention that he intends to keep her on for a while, um, is it's a good sign. You know, it's a sign that the criticism of him uh, in the course of the last couple of months has had an impact, and maybe he's going to Pay attention to it. I don't know. It's not his history, but it's possible. Anything's possible. You know. I believe people can change. And uh, Fred Hahn wrote a good piece today in Rabble where he talked about, well, let's give the guy a chance. And I'm I'm not against. I mean, there's no, we have no alternative, right? But I'm not. You know, I'm 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 sitting here talking to you from Uchima, which is his writing. And I talk to a lot of people here about him. And um, you know, there's not many there's not many positive pictures. I have to say.
1: Judy, what do you say to uh, about people like Jim Laxer, who I don't necessarily associate with the, the center, let alone the right, mm-hmm. throwing their weight behind uh, Mr. Mulcair? Well,
3: I think, I think Laxer didn't really see a difference between Brian, politically between Brian Topp and Thomas Mulcair. And he thought that Brian Topp was more represented the party establishment, who he obviously is still very angry with and that uh, Mulcair was more independent from the party establishment. The other the other thing is I think he thought Brian Mulcair could um, maintain the party support in Quebec, which I have serious doubts about, um, and Brian Topp could not. Uh, so I think that was, he was looking at, between the two front runners, he went with Mulcair. And I, I think he was basically saying, well, everybody in the NDP... Is to the right of my politics, and I'm going to criticize them anyway. I'd rather have someone who's independent, who's recognized in Quebec, who has a base in Quebec, and can maintain the breakthrough that the NDP made in Quebec. And I agree that that's very important. I'm just not convinced that Mulcair can do that because the the reality is that you know Mulcair is a ferocious federalist. That's his reputation in Quebec. I mean, he was more ferocious in the referendum campaign when he was a Liberal than almost anybody else, against the sovereigntists, And the fact of the matter is that most of the Québécois, and people in English Canada don't understand this, but most of the Québécois who voted NDP in the last federal election are sovereigntists. They voted PQ before. They didn't vote Conservative before. They voted, or Liberal even, they voted PQ before. And so, maybe some of them voted Liberal, but the vast majority of them voted PQ, so they were Sovereignists. And a lot of them, a lot of Sovereignists don't like Thomas Mulcair because he's taken such a strong position against them but more important than that the reason that the NDP was in my view was able to make the breakthrough in Quebec was because Jack stopped having this ferocious federalist attitude and started to see that he could ally with the Bloc Québécois on certain issues there's a lot of commonality between the NDP and the Bloc Québécois yes they disagree on, on uh, federalism or on, on, on sovereignty But on other issues, they're quite close, and I think whereas somebody like Broadbent was always so um, focused on the federalist federalist issue, it was like for me, it's like the that issue, the national question in Canada is like for the Social Democrats, it's like war. You know, it's like you have to be like on the side of the Canadian state against Quebec sovereignty, and it's like that is the central question. Well, it's not the central question to me. It's a question and um, and I think Jack shifted that and I think Mulcair will bring that back and that will lose support in Quebec, not gain it. That's my view.
1: Okay, well Judy, uh, we appreciate this uh, post-leadership uh, convention uh, commentary so thank you very much for sharing sure. that uh, viewpoint with us. And Alert has been joined by Judy Rebeck who is the founder of Rabble.ca and has uh, been a longtime observer and a political commentator. Last Thursday, it is estimated that over 200,000 people took to the streets of downtown Montreal as part of weeks-long protests against the Charest government's plan to hike student tuition by $1,625 over the next five years. McGill University-based CKUT 90.3 FM has been producing ongoing analysis, interviews, and updates on the student strike, which has grown into a full-blown social movement. Here is an excerpt from a report on last Thursday's protest produced by CKUT contributor Stefan Christoph.
5: Today, Downtown Montreal was seen to a massive protest for accessible education, a protest against moves by the Quebec government to hike tuition 1,625 dollars a year, or 75 percent. It is estimated that upwards of 200,000 people joined the mass march that completely filled large parts of the downtown core. Today's protest was the latest street action in an ongoing student strike across Quebec that continues to build momentum. It is estimated now that upwards of 300,000 students are participating in the Quebec wide student strike. Quebec's student strike has now turned into a social movement, involving major union federations, artistic networks, and many community organizations across Montreal and throughout Quebec. Leading the strike is l'Association pour une solidarité syndicale étudiant, AC. In Quebec... Students are fighting for accessible education. A long standing struggle led by social movements in Quebec over decades. The last major student strike taking place in 2005 and previously in the late 1990s. Past student strikes that led to a more accessible system of university education in Quebec. Deep red, the color representing the student strike movement, filled downtown as students were draped in red. Red shirts, red pants, little red squares that are now popular across Quebec. Students carried massive red banners, representing various student unions and associations from all of Montreal's major four universities, Université de Québec à Montréal, UCAM, McGill University, Concordia University, and Université de Montréal. I had the opportunity to join the massive protest and record some voices of students, professors and community activists who joined together for this massive protest on March 22nd on the streets of downtown Montreal. we will hear from Kautar Bia, student activist at Université de Québec à Montréal, UCAM, who speaks on the important role that UCAM played in mobilizing for the current mass student strike in Quebec. Uh, you're a student at UCAM uh, here in Montreal. Can you maybe talk about why, why are you joining this student strike?
6: Basically I'm drawing because it's, uh, it's our duty as students and as the future of the society to stand up and ri- raise up a prize against this uh, unfair tuition fees and we have to make this education more accessible, we have to get it free for everyone, it's the basic rights for us. Yeah.
5: What does this tuition fee hike concretely mean for students who are struggling to get by?
6: I mean it means a lot. It means uh, for me, for example, I'm in my second uh, year of PhD and if the tuition fees rise up like this I'm not going to be able to finish my PhD, I'm not going to be able to teach, I'm not going to be able to work with my, my background, with my degrees and for all the students what it means, it means that we're not going to live, we're going to survive even more than we're doing right now. Everything is rising, like the rent, the electricity, everything. So it's hard for us to live and have a, a sustainable education. And we have to rise against the marchandisation of the education. Yeah. Um,
5: last question. Um, can you talk about the strike at UCAM? Because you're a student at uh, University of Quebec in Montreal and there's been mass protests uh, at UCAM specifically so how is the strike being at UCAM?
6: I mean the strike has started almost a month ago and they've been working on it since last session and uh, it means a lot the professors are very supportive all the students are very supportive um, and we are really proud to be not the leaders but those who started it and people in UCAM like AFESH, AFESPED they they go to all the CEGEPs they go to all the universities to, to not educate, but sensibiliser les étudiants, um, the students, uh, to the reality. And they really did a great job to mobilize the whole, the whole student community. Yeah.
5: Now we will hear from Concordia professor and community activist Eric Schrag speaking on the relationship between student struggles and broader fights for social justice in Quebec today and in the past. You're a professor at Concordia. Can you speak about why you're here today?
4: Sure. I'm here to join the students in the struggle against the increase in tuition fees. Why, why is this uh, an important issue? for Quebec? It's important at several levels. Tuition is basically a barrier to education. If we believe in mass education as a requirement for our societies, then tuition should be free, as is every other level of education. Tuition comes from an old system where only the elite went to university, and the rich could pay, and now it's a mass prerequisite for most jobs, and people should have free university. On top of that, tuition fees are basically user fees for public services, and we have to fight against that. For um, a time of quote-unquote austerity,
5: um, it seems that this is the first time there's been major street protests um, since the economic crisis um, globally, uh, not only in Quebec, but across Canada. So can you talk about the importance of this strike and this mobilization for um, politics not only in Quebec but across
4: Canada? I think it's um, an important example for people across Canada to see the capacity of people to mobilize the numbers in the streets, the way it's crossed English and French, particularly the enthusiasm as you can hear. Hopefully it'll be a politicizing event for people.
5: So um, the student strike today has really focused on public actions involving many thousands of people. There's also been um, various types of protests including economic disruption of uh, the port in Montreal this morning. Um, So the student unions have opted for public participatory options over uh,
4: backdoor negotiations. I don't know how it's going to resolve itself in a way because the government seems committed to its program of forcing tuition hikes, the students are massively in the streets, so I I don't know how how this is going to resolve. I hope that the actions become more militant as if the government refuses to move. I wonder how it will be sustained from a student point of view after a certain time. The very fact that courses are being disrupted puts a lot of pressure on the university. Maybe they'll put pressure on the government. It's hard to figure out how it'll play. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one last question.
5: Um, can you can you talk about this strike um, as building on a particular history in Quebec?
4: Yeah. There's. I remember as a student in the late '60s, the Union Ujek was called. But it was massive student mobilization then, and it's a wonderful tradition in Quebec. People come out in the streets, they have analysis and politics. Hopefully it's a training ground for long-term radical change and mobilization. Thank you. You
5: have been listening to a report on the March 22nd massive protest against tuition hikes in Montreal, Quebec. Many estimates place the number of participants at upwards of 200,000 people on the streets of downtown Montreal, a protest taking place in the context of a growing student strike across Quebec. For more information on the ongoing student strike visit www.stopthehike.ca That's www.stopthehike.ca This report was produced at CKUT Radio in Montreal for broadcast on community radio stations globally by journalist Stefan Christophe
4: Hi, this is Mitch Podolik, this is Music is the Weapon, and today we're once again going to introduce new writers to me, and hopefully to you. Here to start is a wonderful character named Tom Morello with Worldwide Rebel Song. Worldwide
7: Rebel Song Sing out loud all night long Hang on, man, it won't be long
8: London Town, where there's voices raised and barricades, believe me man I'm down, tyrants bloodsuckers and bag men, got us picking through the crumbs, raise your voices all together, motherfucker here we come, worldwide rebel songs, sing out loud all night long, hang on man it won't be long,
7: worldwide.
8: Small slums in Korea, open fire with a guitar, bass and drums. Down in Gaza, down in Fresno, out your door and down your street. Are you gonna stand around or are you gonna be free? Worldwide rebel songs, sing out
7: loud all.
8: Tonight, love, the fight has just begun, raise your voices all together, mother. stones, in the streets and in the fields, cursed and crushed beneath the wheels, but together we are strong, our songs echo in the darkness, down the Maquilodora's halls, where Brother Solomon was tortured, one tree in the orchard casts a shadow on the wall. hard and long But the dogs are coming home We are the dogs of Tijuana Left for dead in the ravine In the arroyos and the valleys The sewers and the alleys We shiver and we dream So don't stop to ask directions you lost your way The wrath of the lion is the wisdom of God And every dog has its day One, two, three, four ah, 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 The way is hard alone ah, ah, But the dogs are coming And to these pastures came Into the hands of wicked men Sold by the hands of strangers There'll be no silver lining friend Of that I'm sure So shake my hand one last time Cause brother, this is war Dogs of Tijuana, watching every road in the town. Horizon sea without a shore, right outside your door. So why weep now? One, two, three, four. ah, ah, The way's hard, long. ah, ah, But tonight, we're coming home. Of Tier One, howling in the night. The world will not end in fire, it will not end in ice, it will
9: end when we arrive. It's night where you are, sleep well, my lily. It's morning where I am Your father would like to be Anything else but a soldier Yesterday morning, sleep well, my lily We marched through a village Your father would like to be Anything else but a soldier Told us, sleep well, my little. To search house and stable, your father would like to be anything else but a soldier. I burst through a door, sleep well, my little. I found no one hiding, your father would like to be anything else but a soldier. Behind me, sleep well, my little. I spun round to face it. Your would like to be anything else but a soldier. A silhouette at the door, sleep well, my little. Aimed a gun, I was certain. Your father would like to be anything else but a soldier. I raised and I fired Sleep well, my little I got him, he crumbled Your father would like to be Anything else but a soldier But when I walked to the bottom Sleep well, my little I prayed I'd been dreaming Your father would like to be Anything but a soldier She was only a girl Sleep well, my Lily. As young as my daughter your Father would like to be Anything else but a soldier Last night I decided Sleep well, my Lily. Wallow a bullet, your father would like to be anything else but a soldier, but I was more scared to die, sleep well my little, boy, and weary of killing, your father would like to be anything else but a soldier. I swore, sleep well my little You learned this about me Your father would like to forget He was ever a soldier
4: That was Ragu Lokenathan with Soldier. And before that, the Dogs of Tijuana and a worldwide rebel song sung by Tom Morello. Now we're gonna hear another song by Ragu Lokenathan, Homeless.
9: is around us Maybe you will find some ease Birds are busy hopping all over the ground And the breeze smells sweet You've had no luck in the papers had no breaks at the job. Well, it must be hard. Well, it must be hard. Everything costs a pretty I'll tell you how to build a thumb piano From bits of steel you find out in the street Between the cars and fresh blooms of guano Live the rusty to make it sing like a little bird like a little bird who raises great waves in
4: Vancouver songwriter Raghu Nathan That's it for this week, folks. This is Music as a Weapon. I'm Mitch Podolik. Solidarity.
1: That's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you'd like to send us a comment, write to alert at To hear this show again or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select Alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca.
0: The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Cygonic. Technical producers are Michael Welch and Tommy Allen. Alert Headlines by Ben Wood. Around the Left by Ashley Titterton. Music is The Weapon by Mitch Podolik with technical production by Andrew Valpy. I'm Ashley Titterton.
1: And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.